Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the investment and merchant bank for the digital economy. Today, we conclude our two-part special featuring insights from Liontree's 2019 class of interns as they tell us about trends in the tech and media space that they feel are underrepresented in the current dialogue. Tune in to hear about the surprising relationship between fintech and macro data, as well as a deep dive into the sports sector, including topics such as legalized betting, live sports and the OTT opportunity, and the new paradigm of athletes as entrepreneurs. Enjoy this overview of what tomorrow's business leaders are thinking about. I'm Hugh Safaldelli. I go to Brown University and I'm studying economics. I'm currently a junior. Today, we're going to talk about macro data's importance in fintech. It might seem odd to open a podcast about fintech with a statistic about RVs, talking about motorhomes, campers, the moving vehicles you can sleep in. Answer the following question. What percent of American households with over $100,000 of disposable income would like to purchase an RV? 5%, 10%. The answer is over 25%. I bet real money that the majority of the people listening to Kindred Cast would have guessed under 10% and perhaps have never set foot in an RV. Trust me when I say I'm uninterested in your desire to vacation in an all-American aluminum airstream, but it wouldn't take much convincing to say that it is important for executives and investors to understand the broader tendencies of consumers beyond the scope of their own industry, the consumer price index, or their own socioeconomic and geographic equals. And if there's any industry where that's particularly important to understand, and specifically understand the macro data, it would be fintech. Fintech is a vibrant space filled with venture capital investment, but it's also immensely challenging with thousands of entrants. Across every fintech vertical, it's a race to zero in transaction costs, squeezing opportunities for revenue everywhere. In retail, if you can sell 100 widgets for a few times more than your cost, you probably have a winning product. For almost every fintech vertical, you might only make a few cents in revenue per transaction. Therefore, you have to have a massive number of users to have similar revenues to other industries. To scale like this, your total addressable market needs to expand well beyond your own baseball park. If you can save the customer just a few cents per transaction, or just a small amount of time, or educate them just enough to slightly make a better choice, you can scale fast. America has half of the world's consumer debt. Across America, there are thousands of credit cards in the United States. Most of them have millions of dollars spent on advertising to have you select a card that might have a fraction of a percentage higher cost than another card. If you can save the consumer that fraction, you have a product. NerdWallet is a $500 million company for a reason. Apply the same logic for car loans and mortgages. If you reduce a loan's cost by a small percentage for a borrower and reduce the cost of acquisition by a fraction for a lender, you get LendingTree, a company that doesn't provide any capital for loans. It simply educates borrowers, links them with lenders, and lets consumers save on each loan that they take. It's a $5 billion company. The exact same logic can be used for eHealth, a company which doesn't provide any healthcare plans. It just helps consumers choose slightly better healthcare plans by educating them and providing a list of options and showing them their terms in an organized fashion. It's a $2.5 billion company. Let's make it a little more interesting. How many Americans turn to pawn shops yearly? It's a totally arcane business and one that people don't quite think about that much, and especially probably most of the people listening to Kindred. 30 million people annually use pawn shops, and it's a $16 billion industry, and it still is today. How can it still exist if there's probably better options? Well, let's run some numbers. 
On average, rent is due every 28 days. The average approval time for a bank to approve a personal loan is five to seven days. Add on the statistic that 30% of Americans have bad credit scores, and you might have your answer. Can fintech potentially affect pawn lending as a space? Well, Pontera, Borrow, and Pongo certainly hope so. Perhaps LendUp will change the game. LendUp provides loans on the same day without hidden fees of payday loans or the cost of actually visiting a physical location of a pawn shop, and it can help build your credit score in the process. The same logic applies to business loans. Banks can take 72 hours to approve you. Cabbage, a $700 million company, can approve you in as little as six minutes. One more. How much money moved from high-income countries to low-income countries last year in the form of remittances? Over half a trillion dollars. If you can lower the transaction cost of moving money across the border by one cent, you can scale big time. TransferWise, a company that was founded in 2011 and is worth $3.5 billion, is fully online and has a slightly better exchange rate than Western Union, a company founded in 1851. So fintech is a crowded space. If we look at payments, they're unbelievably crowded. Gargantuan players like Stripe and PayPal dominate the market. If you think of something like Stripe or PayPal, you probably don't think of, well, there's a market that could be potentially changed big time if they're already talking about a $20 billion valuation for a company with seven lines of code. If you want to create something new in fintech, you probably want to start by looking at macro-level data on consumer tendencies and markets that have not been fully addressed. If you can find a way to shave a fraction of a percentage off the cost of a transaction that's in line with consumer tendencies, you'll probably be able to buy a whole lot of RVs. My name is Abhisek Sahu. I'll be a senior at UC Berkeley, and I'm studying business administration there. Today, I'll be talking about sports betting. As we know, the federal law was overturned last year in the U.S., which a lot of people thought it was going to have just a major impact across the industry on companies. You know, people thought that the NBA, the NFL would just automatically have partnerships with Bet Online, Bovada, all these different sports betting companies out there and really find a way to integrate between the people that watch the sports and the people that enjoy betting on them. But that actually hasn't been the case in terms of at least like an authorized sense. A lot of studies show out there that there's actually only about 4% of people that previously used unauthorized sports betting companies that have now converted to authorized and legal companies, which is a very small kind of starting point which is really interesting. What I wanted to talk about today was how authorized sports betting companies can optimize their own website and allow and attract a lot more users to transfer onto their websites. Over the past few years, we've seen a lot of developments in the technology that have led online sports betting to become increasingly popular, not only in the US, but on a global scale. Right now, it's pending legalization in a lot of countries, and a lot of the key benefits to these countries include things like higher tax revenue and generating a lot of employment for those companies. These are the key drivers behind the whole industry. As of right now, it's projected to grow around 14% year over year. The entire market is supposed to be over $120 billion by the end of 2026, which is just an insane number to think that only... 10 to 20 billion of those dollars are in legal markets right now. Only 17 states have actually authorized sports betting, which wouldn't make sense because a lot of other states have pending legislation. People generally feel 
a bit more comfortable when obviously when they operate under legal domains, which is definitely the main selling point of these sites. But the question is, why haven't we seen a big jump from that 4% converting? I would say the biggest motivators for going on unauthorized sites would be the greater pricing power because these sites can offer extremely low fees to the better improved functionality on mobile and web-based platforms and also more expansive betting options, essentially making black market bets more convenient and cheaper for the average sports enthusiast. To talk about pricing a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to determine the impact of legalization given the early stages of states implementing various taxes on sports betting sites. It's just crazy the range right now. You know, Iowa is proposing about 7.66% tax on each bet made, and states like Pennsylvania are trying to impose a 36% tax on the bets made. So from the user standpoint, if I'm in a state like Pennsylvania, the opportunity for me to make money, which is the overall goal of sports betting on a legal platform, would just not be there just because of the tax rate. This is definitely one of the huge barriers to entry for new operators coming in that operate sports betting sites. But this means also that the sites that are already out there have the opportunity to draw on a larger pool of bettors but still need to find a way to organically grow in order to compete with these offshore platforms and are therefore forced to innovate to stay in play. Today, we'll um, just kind of go over a couple of ways that these legal companies that are already in place can capture a greater portion of players. I really think this comes down to finding a way to implement the most frictionless experience for users and also investing heavily into things like fraud prevention and cybersecurity so that these companies can, at the end of the day, protect their bottom lines and keep betters happy. A couple of quick stats on mobile betting sites in the beginning. A few years ago in 2012, only 6% of betting transactions took place on mobile devices. Last year, that number has topped over 70%. New Jersey has shown that mobile sports betting can yield very high margin results, but simply creating a platform for people to play on mobile devices is not enough. There needs to be a way to integrate amongst various channels in order for it to be actually convenient for the user. And a quick example of this is a customer should be able to sign up for a betting website on their PC, use a fingerprint scanner on their phone to log into the same platform, and then also be able to have consistent authentication without re-logging in and making the experience a big hassle on the various platforms that we see users today use across iPads, PCs, mobile devices, even TVs sometimes. Overall, by offering these cross-functional user interface elements, we can definitely see the increase in frictionless experiences offering bigger opportunities for sports betting companies. But when going mobile, there's obviously a lot of fraud being brought into the mix. And at a high level, fraudulent users can develop platforms to collect sign-up bonuses or play collusively through multiple accounts operated by the same individual or by getting together with groups of other people and having a string of individuals play unfavorably to the fair player on the platform. Offshore betting companies have historically navigated this problem by including things like proxy and VPN detection or complicated sign-up bonus accruals into the platform that are integrated into their overall know-your-customer strategies. They're able to do this because 
essentially users will stay throughout these additional hassles for the lower margins because at the end of the day, most bettors care about price and the lowest take rate that these betting companies have, the higher users will be able to use your platform. There are also not that many regulatory barriers on these unauthorized companies, which is why they can afford to have very simple fraud prevention measures. Additionally, when talking about like sign-up bonuses and the complicated accruals that these companies have, the aggregate amount of bonuses that have been paid out has risen by over 287% in the last three years. And when legal sites come into the mix, they need to find ways to adapt and attract users without complicating this process and taking advantage of that pool and that growing interest of people signing up for accounts, which essentially means that they need to invest very heavily into their backend development because of that, as a result, incur significant R&D or cybersecurity cost to keep platforms running smoothly. They can be doing these things by integrating machine learning with previous KYC solutions and basically find a way to optimize this vast amount of transactions on a global scale in order to weed out fraud. To take it a step further, I think that technology is only one part of the solution. If rings of fraudulent cyber criminals are able to work together to beat a platform, then online betting platforms need to do the same. This is one of the main advantages that I think legal companies can have, because when you're all under one regulatory umbrella, essentially these companies can find ways to work with each other to delete this user from the various companies and accounts that they might make on different platforms. This would kind of be similar to like what's called no-fly list in airplanes, except this would be amongst betting operators. All in all, to kind of summarize this topic, the rollout of sports betting on mobile has been much slower than expected, as I mentioned before, but it's still an extremely immature industry and potentially very lucrative industry moving forward. At the end of the day, companies need to be quick in order to capture the growing amount of people that are interested in placing bets online day by day. From my own standpoint, you know, I personally am a very avid better myself and I find it very easy to do like a quick search for the best signup deals when first getting started. Once I get the most optimal bonus structure, I'll just go with the platform and stay loyal to the platform for like a very long time. Players will likely revert to the safety of legal over illegal platforms in due time, as long as these legal companies are doing things like providing the same margins, offering the same breadth of betting experience. And at the end of the day, just taking advantage of the overall feeling of rush that bettors get when they place bets around the world. So thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm Karthik Gorjala. I'm studying at Berkeley, a rising senior, and I'm studying economics. So I'm sure everyone remembers the 1996 critically acclaimed Jerry Maguire. I mean, who doesn't know? It's about the sports agent played by Tom Cruise, his marquee client, Rod Tidwell, the football player played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Do you remember the iconic scene where Cuba Gooding repeatedly screams into his phone, show me the money, show me the money. Now, this idea is one that's long been associated with sports agents who are pretty much just viewed as legal representatives for athletes that negotiate their contracts and take a certain cut. That's it. But the role of sports agents has long since been transformed into one that's more sophisticated than just simply negotiating contracts. And this progression is what I'll be talking about today, along with thoughts about the industry going forward. Now, the origins of the industry can be traced back as far as 1925, when star running back Red Grange hired Charles Pyle to negotiate his professional football contract with the Chicago Bears for 100000 and a share of the gate. 
Now, this was unheard of at a time when most of his teammates were earning between $25 to $100 per game. It wasn't until 1960 when Mark McCormack, the founder of IMG, signed Arnold Palmer with the infamous handshake agreement that has now become an urban legend. Now, this is actually a funny story. McCormack had just split up from his other business partner and given up all his clients to go all in on Arnie. In Palmer's words, he said, he would drop a contract. I said, no, you won't. He said, I'm a lawyer. That's what I do. My business is doing contracts. And Palmer said, I don't really care what you do as a lawyer. What you're going to do is you're going to tell me what you're going to do for me, and then we'll shake hands and we'll go ahead and do what we said. Now, this story is actually a myth, though. I mean, there are thousands of legal documents behind the scenes, apparently. But it's still like an almost movie-like moment that lives on in infamy. McCormack believed the popularity and marketability of athletes could transcend borders, cultures, language, even sports itself. Soon after Palmer came deals with other legends, Gary Player and Jack Nicklaus, the big three, launching IMG to the behemoth and famed agency that it is today. By 1985, they branched out to other sports, to soccer, to tennis. They had Pele, Chris Everett, Herschel Walker, among others with the global footprint. In the 1980s, the pro-serve agency turned Michael Jordan into a household name. I mean, who doesn't know the Jordan brand? Multiplying his league salary several times over in endorsements and turning athlete management into an art. In the coming decades, salaries began to swell with more revenue from TV. Team owners were forced to embrace the idea of profit sharing. And agencies became huge conglomerates that deal with everything from sneaker branding to advising athletes to dealing with travel to managing their Instagram accounts and so on. In today's sports agency environment, positions in sports and entertainment are expected to grow 10% between 2016 and 2026. Now, this is higher than the national average for all occupations, and the sports industry in North America is expected to reach $74 billion by the end of 2019. It's a completely different monster. Modern technology plays a major role in every business. The day-to-day management of clients has become a moment-to-moment management of their careers. Athletes can now connect with fans through social media. They can direct message them. Fans can direct message back, and almost all marketing agreements include a social component. That wasn't even the norm four years ago. Agencies have grown to include dedicated PR, marketing, creative, and support staff. On top of this, the last five to six years have seen a massive conglomeration in the sports agency business. Of the approximately 4,100 professional athletes in the big four leagues, more than 1,700 or 40% of them are represented by just 10 agencies with some of the largest players, including creative artist agencies, Boras, Relativity Sports, and more. As these conglomerates continue to buy up smaller shops and independent agents, the competition will only become fiercer and the margin thinner. Agencies will continue to focus on expanding their scope of services beyond traditional athlete representation to help clients build and grow their brands off the field through endorsements, social media, and increasingly preparing them for post-career, which is becoming equally as important. The value of the athlete's personal brand is unparalleled in today's world. Before, athletes needed to be playing the biggest markets, had to be the best players, the Jordans, the Ali's, the Tysons of the world to monetize their brand to the maximum. You had to be rubbing shoulders with Hollywood. You had to be in the tabloids. You had to know billionaires and so on. Now, you can be a 16-year-old from a small town in South Carolina making videos of yourself dunking and having fun with your friends, and you can have millions of followers before even going to college. That was a number one pick in the last draft, Zion Williamson from Duke, who plays in New Orleans, by the way, not even one of the biggest markets in the country. Or you can be the quietest player possibly in the history of North American sports. You can be Kawhi Leonard and profit off your personal brand entirely built on your unassuming personality and big hands, trademarked The Claw. We are headed to a world where content will become one of the biggest drivers of revenue. 
Agencies now need to look at how they can help clients create, own, and monetize content. Two other areas that are going to be really interesting to watch going forward are gaming and sports betting, if legalized on a widespread basis. Both areas are on the verge of exponential growth, and agencies have the opportunity to be at the forefront. These avenues are also converging with technology. In marketing, we also increasingly see brands invoking data, particularly social media numbers, to determine an athlete's endorsement value. The recent trend of increasing the breadth and variety of services will also continue. Specifically in broadcast, the impact of cable networks' loss of subscribers, the shift away from studio news to more interactive shows, to the continued growth and impact of social media, OTT distribution, and virtual reality all offer ways for elite athletes to grow their own personal brands. This will pressure the linear sports networks to continue to find ways to reinvent themselves. Now, breaking news in sports is released even before the traditional news outlets can get the news out there. You see them coming out on Twitter. You have inside information. You have the ESPN reporter, the Woj, building his own personal brand. Even the reporters around sports, not just the players themselves. You have Kevin Durant going to the Nets and Alibaba being one of the co-owners of the Nets, allowing him to build his personal brand in China. And that's huge given the popularity in China. If you remember from a few years ago when Lin Sanity took over New York, I mean, I'm a Nets fan, but it almost made me a Knicks fan for two weeks. But now he's a huge thing in China. It's a huge deal. You have news outlets like the Players' Tribune and Uninterrupted all giving more power to the players. You don't even have to be a household name anymore. Like you have PJ Tucker, who's hardly a household name. He's a role player on the Rockets. But he had his own show on the Players' Tribune about his shoe collection. And this whole changing world will inspire the agencies to become more entrepreneurial in identifying what were once considered non-traditional avenues of income for their clients. Agencies will continue to look more like media companies, getting more involved in content creation, ownership, and distribution across all platforms that surround the connected consumer. Content creators, in this case, the athletes, will continue to shape the cultural narrative, and agencies with the best networks across all forms of culture will pull ahead of the rest. Clients can become their own media platform, and it is the agency's job to harness this. It's like Rod Tidwell said, show me the money. It's never been a better time. My name is Houston Cowan, going to be a senior at Yale this next year. I'm studying economics and data analysis. Today, I want to talk about the overall landscape of OTT, specifically in the sports streaming world as it gets more competitive, as these large tech players and traditional broadcasters get into the OTT and direct-to-consumer space. OTT began with Netflix's streaming service launch in 2007. And since Netflix has moved into the space, the diffusion of content has really changed and theories have gone back and forth about where the industry is going, who will survive, and who will be on top when it's all said and done. And we've seen these legacy players and these tech players who have entered the market later, like Disney, like WarnerMedia, Amazon, etc., We've seen them having to heavily invest in in a meaningful way in this space in order to buy up these assets. So Disney's acquisition of two-thirds of Hulu, soon to be in the next few years, by 2024, 100% of Hulu. And then, of course, as well, AT&T buying WarnerMedia just a couple of years ago. How does sports look moving forward? Where is the environment going? The answer is that it may be even more competitive than the content itself. Before I go further, I'd like to ask a question that was prompted once before on Kindred, which is the magic number for OTT, the magic addressable market saturation is 25%. So the goal is for these content providers to reach that threshold of 25% of US market. Only four OTT services have reached that threshold today. It's Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, and YouTube. 
who will be there five years from now? Will that number grow? Will the consumer's wallet grow? Or will the list change? Will some not make it on? Will some be taken off? And I think it could look a bit different. And I'll talk about that at the end. As we see the collision of these first mover companies like Netflix and Hulu colliding with these larger traditional companies and also tech companies like Amazon and Facebook, to complete the bundle, the last step will be sports. I think right now, a lot of these companies are focusing on original content creation. And I do think the last step will be sports for the larger companies. They'll stand to benefit as they have the capital to invest in programming rights or at least pay for the retransmission of them. The implicit power behind the importance of sports offerings is also backed up by the numbers. 85% of the top broadcasted slots each year are sports related. Of the top 50 spots last year by viewership in broadcasting, 40 of them were sports related, whether that be the NFL, Olympics, or, or NBA basketball. And that was reported by Nielsen. Of course, the most coveted of all is the NFL. Last year alone, Amazon paid over $50 million for the retransmission rights of 10 NFL games. And they've also been looking into buying programming rights for another 20 Premier League matches for over $30 million per match. So these are big numbers and the space is certainly growing. And carriage fees are also a point of concern, especially for the niche OTT players that I mentioned before, of which there are many in the space. For reference, Fox Corporation, their revenue from retransmission fees or carriage fees is set to grow at a CAGR of over 17% through 2022. And that's just one measurement to quantify the imbalance in the space right now. And I think if we see these programming rights and these carriage fees get too high, we'll start to see a massive consolidation in the space in order to counterweight for that. These larger companies, although they came into the space late, simply because of their distribution ability and their overall subscriber base, they'll be able to propel themselves to top the market to not only reach that sought after 25% of addressable market share in the U.S., but even 40% or more. I don't think there's necessarily a limit to this, especially if we assume that the consumer's wallet grows, which I think it does. Platforms such as Facebook or, or Twitter will offer these types of sports viewing for free just to gain advertisement revenues or data like they have in the past. So I think there'll be more options, but you want it to pay for every single option, I don't think. A more cost-effective form of content, popular among younger viewers, I believe is primed to grow, and that's player and team-specific content. We've seen entrants in this space, such as Facebook, coming out with Facebook Watch, which just launched a couple years ago, featuring multiple mini-series on professional athletes, most notably Tom vs. Time, which gained over 16 million views on its first episode. These alternatives are real, and I do think they're a very good avenue for these smaller players to go into if these carriage fees eventually get too high. I do think it's true that people my age and younger are more interested in the content behind the game rather than the game itself sometimes. And I think in this light, the ability for social media platforms to take advantage of their concentrated subscriber base paired with the demand for enhanced content is an integration that we will see increasingly over the years. I think in the end, the debate will continue to be between distribution and content but in a marketplace where consumers will be exposed to an intense variety of providers, price will be less and less of a differentiator. So it'll put more stress upon the distinct content offerings that these different platforms can offer. Something that surprised me within the sector was Twitter's hesitancy towards it. In the past few years, Twitter's made agreements with the MLB and the Olympics to do certain content streamings, whether it be games or shows, 
And recently they've denoted that they're not going to be overpaying for these assets, for these sports programming assets that I spoke about skyrocketing in cost. They didn't know how they felt about the agreement with the MLB this year right now. Currently, they've scaled back the number of games that they'll be uh, streaming. But the interesting caveat to that is that they want to go for undercovered sports, whether that be lacrosse, cricket, whatever it may be. They've said that that's a space that they find very interesting, I'm assuming due to the lower cost in fees. Can Netflix thrive and will they be able to invest in the sports content area to maintain the kind of position at the top of the hill? I don't know. To really understand where this industry is going, all eyes will really be on 2022 when the NFL programming rights come up due. We're going to see whether these tech players like Netflix, who have no problem spending $13 billion last year on content alone, are willing to put the cash out for sports programming rights as well. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.